right, well, hey, what's going on? Happy Thursday, and welcome to Chatterbox Reds. My name is Nick Kirby. Chatterbox Reds, your daily home for Cincinnati Reds content all season long as the season starts to wind down. The show presented, as always, by Betfred Sportsbook. Well, coming up on today's show, Trace Fowler and Craig Sandlin discuss Wednesday night's Reds game. I'll let you know where things stand in the NL wildcard race. But first, here's what happened in Cleveland on Wednesday night in the finale of a quick two-game series. Wednesday was the final home game for the beloved Cleveland Guardians manager, Terry Francona, and the crowd in Cleveland was certainly invested and behind the team more than you would typically expect for a team that entered 10 games under 500, playing out the string on their 2023 season. Andrew Abbott got the start for the Reds. Abbott entered the game already at 43 innings, more than he threw all of last season, and he just did not have it on Wednesday night. Abbott gave up eight hits and only lasted two and a third innings. Abbott did only give up four hard hit balls, and the Guardians were not necessarily crushing him, but Abbott was only able to get two swing and misses in his entire outing. Reds were down 3-0 when Daniel Duarte came in the third inning to relieve Abbott. Duarte was able to get the runner that Abbott left on stranded, but then Duarte did give up a run in the fourth inning when he came back out, and the Reds found themselves in a 4-0 hole. The Reds' bullpen after that would be absolutely lights out. Alex Young, Buck Farmer, and Ben Lively each threw a perfect inning of relief, and Ian Jabot pitched around a couple base runners, for a scoreless inning as well. The Reds offense, they only had one base runner through the first four innings against Guardians starting pitcher Shane Bieber. Ellie De La Cruz crushed a single 109 off the bat with two outs in the fifth inning. Ellie then stole second base, and then with Will Benson at the plate, he hit a ball that bounced off Guardians first baseman Josh Naylor. Ball went up in the air. Ellie attempted to round third, scoring from second base, but Guardian second baseman Brian Rocchio made a great play to quickly fire home and get Ellie out to end the inning and keep the Reds off the scoreboard. By the top of the six, Jonathan India doubled, and then TJ Friedel singled him home, and it was a 4-1 game. Top of the eighth, Nick Martini came in to pinch hit for Luke Maley. Martini doubled, then Jonathan India doubled, and it was a 4-3 game. Then back-to-back ground outs from Friedel and Steer got India home, and the Reds were within a run down 4-3. Reds trailed 4-3 going into the ninth inning. With one out against Guardians closer Emmanuel Classe, Noel V. Marte hit a ball down the right field line. The ball bounced directly to a right fielder with one of the best arms in the sport, Ramon Lariano, and Lariano fired to second base, Noelvi Marte was called out on the field. Replay made it look like Marte was probably safe, but it was hard to tell if the tag hit Marte's thumb or not. MLB replay went with the classic call stands, and then Ellie De La Cruz hit a ball three feet in front of the plate, and the Reds would fall 4-3 to three for a very tough loss. With the Guardians celebrating their manager Terry Francona after his final game on the field, You could just see on the Reds broadcast just how much this lot hurt. Guys like Jonathan India, Tyler Stevenson, Spencer Steer, Ellie De La Cruz, and Christian Encarnacion Strand. 
It's really tough to see those guys in the dugout giving it all they've given all year and looking at this point like it's probably going to come up short. Here's what Reds manager David Bell had to say after the game. Play there in the ninth with Marte. Did you get any further clarification? Were you surprised that the call was not overturned? We've had so many close calls like that, and once it goes to replay, there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. Um, you can't even ask for any sort of clarification, so you just trust that um, you know they have angles that we just don't see. So, very close play. The bottom line was the guy made an incredible throw, one of the best throws we've seen all year. And Noelvi, that's great base running. I mean, that's what's won us games. Um, I mean, he beat the throw, or you know, the throw just barely beat him. I mean, there's absolutely nothing you can do about that other than keep playing the game that way and. Um, there's no other way to do it, um, definitely not for our team. So um, just a great baseball play by the Guardians right there that uh, turned out to be a big play in the game. It's kind of live and die with that um, approach. Ellie got thrown out at the plate again, same type of play. It's just the ones that you've got to live with the aggression because you guys have been so successful with it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's not... Uh, you know, aggressive without you know any any sort of thought. I mean, you, you obviously have to be smart. I, I, I think we've been um, a, a base running team that uh, we can you know we can be proud of the way we've run the bases and aggress being aggressive is a big part of that. Um, caring about it is a big part of it. Um, you know, always thinking about the extra base no matter what, and, and definitely not becoming tentative when um, you know, the other team makes a play like like they did tonight. Is this a night of uh Abbott just not having it. Yeah, definitely didn't have his off speed. That, that uh, you know it was really good and and well be good. Um, so he was trying to do it with mainly his fastball, um, and he gave everything he had. You know, and uh, you know, but talked about this time of year. That's all you can do, and um, hopefully we see him pitch again um, this season. Um, but. Uh, um, you know, it's, no matter what, it's been really a great year for him um, all the way around. And here's what Red starting pitcher Andrew Abbott had to say. Some nights you just don't have it. Um, I mean, yeah, you can chalk it up to that. They were putting good swings on pitches. Um, no execution. Try to get fastballs up, leaving them down across the middle of the plate. I uh, really only hurt myself in those situations when you can't execute. And, you know, they took advantage of them and... You know, obviously how it turned out is not how we wanted it to. Did you kind of figure out why you weren't able to execute the pitches or diagnose what the issues were besides just maybe being, you know, getting a little worn down down the stretch here? No, I mean, you know, my job has just been the same this whole season. Just go out and try to compete. Some days you don't have it, and you kind of just have to continue to go out and try to eat up innings as best you can, however you can. Um, it just wasn't one of those nights. Do you feel like you're kind of tired down the stretch, or was it a workload, all that? No, I feel good. Um, you know, I feel good. The, the team is still trusting me to go out and get uh, start start the game and go get some outs. Um, and like I said, I'm just going to go out and compete no matter what I got left in the tank. Because obviously, uh, these are all must-win games, and to not win a must-win game, what, what's the kind of the, the mood right now over there inside there? Um, I mean, it's quiet, but, you know, after losing a game like that with the questionable call at the end uh, that probably should have been overturned from what the replay looked like, um, 
you know, just some, like I said, like I didn't have it tonight, but the team almost, almost was enough to pick me back up. Um, and, you know, we still got three games left and we can still make some moves with some right, with some other situations going on. So we just got to focus and move one game at a time. The, um, you mentioned the call, but like just the aggressiveness there. You feel like that kind of defines you guys all year, you know, just trying to, to go for it there at the end. Yeah, I mean, I think I think being aggressive is, is is a good thing for us. I mean, like you said, we've been aggressive the entire time. You know, we kind of live and die by it, and I think you can't change your identity no matter if it's game 162 or if it's game one. I mean, if you're going to be that kind of team, you just got to stick true and, and just kind of keep rolling as it is. The Cubs' bullpen blew another lead, and they lost in extra innings to the Braves, but the Diamondbacks won, and the Marlins were able to split a doubleheader. So here's where the NL wildcard race stands on Thursday morning. The Phillies have clinched the first wildcard spot. The Diamondbacks have nearly clinched the second wildcard spot. Diamondbacks sit at 84 and 74. They have a two-game lead on the Cubs and Marlins. Both of those teams at 82 and 76 are tied for the third and final wildcard spot. The Marlins, however, hold the tiebreaker. So if the season ended today or if there's no movement, up or down in the standings, the Marlins would have that third wildcard spot. Then the Reds sit at 81 and 78. Reds a game and a half back with just three games to play for the Reds. Reds, of course, hold the tiebreaker over the Cubs, but they do not hold the tiebreaker over the Marlins. So that one and a half behind the Marlins actually probably feels more like two games as we stand. The updated fan graphs playoff odds as I record this late on Wednesday night. Diamondbacks now up to 98% odds. The Marlins up to 69.0%. Cubs all the way down to 29.6%. And the Reds, they're at 3.5%. I'll talk a little bit more about what the Reds would need to have happen uh, with the games on Thursday in the wildcard race. But first, here is Trace Fowler and Craig Sandlin discussing Wednesday night's tough loss and a bunch of other Reds topics on Chatterbox Reds Live on YouTube. That one's a tough one to take a little bit, Craig. There was there was a lot of fight in this team. I, I know I know that I'm supposed to say the season's dead, but I just can't do it, Craig. So for now, it's still alive. And unfortunately, you know, I, I don't know how you feel, Craig, but it kind of felt like tonight was one of those nights where you just uh, you got outplayed by a team that just played better tonight. You know, I don't really feel like the Reds gave this one away. I, I know that some may feel that way, perhaps, but ultimately I thought the, the Guardians hit the ball really, really well. They hit the ball hard. Uh, Andrew Abbott, you know, it's not, I don't want to say it's not his fault, but ultimately, you know, we're asking, and I tweeted about this earlier, Craig, we're asking a lot of these guys to to extend themselves to places they've never been before in unfair circumstances to a certain extent, right? Like these, these, are, these are times where rookies usually... They're playing kind of sparingly. Uh, Andrew Abbott, for all intents and purposes, if this team wasn't trying to chase down a playoff spot and they didn't have literally anyone else, would have been shut down in my mind weeks ago. But instead, he's out there grinding it out. And say whatever you want. I thought Shane Bieber, Shane Bieber looked really, really good tonight. I, I know I usually come in here and I complain about the offense when they only score three runs. Tonight, you're not going to get that from me. Um, I watched and I seen and I felt like I, 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 there was some good at bats. Unfortunately, they didn't all go the Reds' way, but ultimately Shane Bieber was a big reason as to why. And it's just hard for me to sit here and be all that critical. I know that seems maybe oxymoronic here, 
Every single time the Reds this year have had a chance to kind of make a statement, it seems like they haven't, Craig. But I don't know when you watch this game if there's anything in particular that has stood out. Yeah, I think, like you said, first and foremost, I think Shane Bieber looked like Shane Bieber of old. I mean, six innings, five hits, one run, seven strikeouts and no walks. And Shane Bieber is one of those pitchers that if you get behind against him, you just are not going to be successful. Uh, He came into tonight with one of the most successful uh, batting averages against when he was ahead with two strikes. Um, I think it was like opponents were hitting 122 coming into tonight when they had two strikes against him on the season. So uh, fifth best in the MLB. And, you know, quite frankly, uh, the, the first couple innings, I felt like the Reds were hitting the ball pretty well. They got a number of hard hit balls. I tweeted about it that, I felt like they were making really good contact. It's just baseball is kind of a fluky game sometimes. Uh, the Reds ended up with 13 hard hit balls to Cleveland's six. I mean, when you look at the box score and you look at kind of exit velocity and some of the things that you would typically expect to see from a from a ball game, I mean, a number of the stats really went the Reds' way. Yeah. It just didn't translate to hits and into runs until late in the game and. Um, you know, Abbott ended up going two and a third. He, he had eight hits and, and three runs. He only gave up four hard hit balls. I mean, um, I think realistically in a in a middle of the year game that has less of a um, effect on the overall season, he probably is able to push through this and go a little bit longer. But uh, David Bell obviously is managing like game seven and, and needed to take him out. I think Quite frankly, he uh, he lost a lot of the energy that he had early on. His balls were flat. Um, he wasn't able to locate them the way he had in the previous, uh, you know, his first 10 starts. Um, he didn't walk anybody today, but just his whiff rate, 7% on the game compared to 26% on the season coming into tonight. So, you know, the, the give the Guardians credit. They were finding the ball with the swings, and uh, lucky for them it was – finding open spaces, but I, I didn't feel like the Reds gave it away tonight. I didn't feel like they lost the game. Um, and quite frankly, I didn't feel like the Guardians won the game. It just was one of those games that just the ball was falling Cleveland's way. And, you know, in Tito's last last outing as, as Guardians manager at home. So um, disappointing for sure. But like you said, I'm not ready to write it off just yet. I didn't see it that way. I'll be honest, Craig. I, I know that uh, sometimes this is where the, the stat cast or the, 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 the baseball savant era loses me a little bit, and it doesn't mean that, it, that, that I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right. None of that. I just When I watched the game tonight, I felt like the Indians had good at bats. They hit the ball, they hit the ball hard or they hit the ball in spots where you know they, they hit it hard enough, right? Like you say, I, I know that maybe a, an 89 or a 90-mile-an-hour ground ball through the left side isn't a hard-hit ball technically from the StatCast uh, crew, but in all, you know, for all intents and purposes, for my money, you know, there are balls that are that are good at bats versus non-good at bats, and you can't just strictly go off of exit below. And I'm not suggesting that's what you're doing, but I'm just saying the overall appearance at the beginning of the game, it just felt like the 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 Guardians were having a lot of good at bats. And, and, and honestly, I had felt like at one point it felt like a minor miracle that, that the Reds were only down by four based off of the way that things have gone. Uh, you, you start the game off for one, for one, you swing at a 3-0 pitch early on, and you have a runner on first base with one out, and you swing at a 3-0 pitch, you're thinking, you know, 
worst case scenario for for the Guardians right there, you 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 get a walk, you get guys on first and second with one out, you tack on instead on a 3-0 pitch, you ground into a double play. Jonathan India made a good play. Um, you know, there was some ground balls, I will admit, that weren't hit all that hard, but they were double play balls, and for whatever reason, this team refuses to play double play depth, and maybe nobody else in the league does that. Maybe that's old school. Maybe I'm turning into the old man yells at Cloud. I just... I guess I'm to the point where what's the delta there? What, and, I, and again, these are things that I'm going to dive into in the offseason and start to get a real understanding because I just can't fathom the reason as to why you wouldn't play traditional double play depth uh, the same way they've played it for 100 years because there's a reason based off where you play in the infield, you have to get to certain spots in order to be able to, to, to make uh, certain plays and I guess my point, Craig, is is I want to know what the delta is. How big of a difference is it between shifting that guy all the way over and, and having him play, you know, like Jonathan India, having him play a normal second base double play depth position because tonight there was two double play balls that they didn't get to that led to runs. And I get, I get the concept, and I understand where the analytics crowd is going to come at me and they're going to say, well, over the course of 5,000 ground balls, Craig, 25 more times out of the 5,000 ground balls, you're actually going to be able to make the play playing over there in the hole versus the other way. And I asked the question, and I think that it's a fair one, is, well, what about the morality of a clubhouse when you hit a routine double play, a rollover, a routine double play ball that doesn't get felled uh, and it doesn't get turned, and now you turn around and you realize that you made a good pitch and you got a guy to roll over a ground ball and nobody's there because you decided that you wanted to try to find a place where he might hit a ball harder. I guess my point at the end of it all is I'd just rather give up a normal hit, a hard hit ground ball to the right side through the hole between first and second. I can live with that. I just can live with that. I can't continue to watch balls bounce six and seven and eight times. I don't know, five feet, six feet right of the second base bag and they're, and they're barely through a hole because Ellie's not quite over far enough to get to it, and Jonathan is literally playing 20, maybe 25 to, I don't know, 20 to 25 feet from the first base bag. I know it sounds like I'm ranting and raving about something that, that ultimately is a knee-jerk reaction, and maybe some of it is. Certainly when you do a post-game show after every single game and you watch it, you, you are a little emotional, Craig, so I'm not trying to bash the whole thing. I just want to know what the delta is. And I guess my point is, if it's only like, if we're talking 20 to 25 times out of 1,000, we're talking less than 5% of the time, Craig, I'd just, rather, I'd just rather live with the idea of losing the traditional way than to try to be smarter than everybody else and do something other than not. It reminds me a little bit of the two-point conversion in football where you're going to go for two every single time. Well, when you don't get it the first two times, it's a little demoralizing. You know, I mean, it doesn't feel right. The flow of the game doesn't feel the way it should. And that's a long-winded way of saying I hate the shift with double play. To be clear, because people are going to crush me for saying this, I'm, I'm only talking about double play situations. I'm not an idiot. If, if there's not a double play opportunity, I'm cool with shifting because there's a reason they, they banned the shift. I understand that. I just don't like the double play opportunity when Jonathan India's you know, I mean, literally 70 feet from second base. Well, and I don't want to spend the whole show talking about it because I think there's a lot more that goes into it. And like you said, we can spend the offseason kind of debating it. But, I mean, to your point, if you're okay with it without anybody on base, then you have to be okay with it with runners on base because the 
ultimately the reason you're okay with it when nobody's on base is because the statistics tell you that's where they're going to hit the ball, right? So if the statistics tell you that's where they're going to hit the ball most of the time and you want them there when nobody's on base, then why wouldn't you want them there when people are on base? It's not like they change the batter by putting a runner on base, right? So I get your frustration and and it kind of goes to what I was saying at the beginning of the game. It didn't really feel like the Indians had – or the Guardians, wow. Uh, it didn't really feel to me like the Guardians were overly crushing the ball, but it was just finding its way through. And, again, to your point, you know, there were balls that felt like uh, were certainly reachable if you were in a different position. But yeah. I feel like we have that every single game. Maybe. The one that frustrated me for sure was the one that uh, was up the middle that India kind of like slid on instead of diving for. I, I don't want to pile on Jonathan India. I know you have your feelings on him as a defensive second baseman, but um, you know, even the broadcast talked about in that position, you need to at least lay out and see if you can't keep the ball in the infield. And sliding is not the same as laying out. It's quite the opposite, actually. So I was a little frustrated by that ball specifically um, early on in the game, but it just, like I said, I – it felt like someone said it in the chat. It just felt like the universe was for Tito Francona tonight. Um, the ball was going the Guardians' way. Some of the hard yeah, hit balls that yeah. you would hope to. I, under, I get your point. The only the only pushback I would say to that, Craig, is, is that when you got a guy on first base, you have the opportunity to get two outs on one ball. When there's nobody on base, Craig, you can't do that. It's impossible. So if if you're telling me that that a small a small majority of the time that a ball's hit to the right side, where you might be able to make. Jonathan Indy, I'll say this, and then we'll be, we'll shut up about it. We'll argue about this at length in the offseason, I promise you. But I'll promise you this. If a ball gets hit to Jonathan India where he's playing at second base, the amount of double plays that they're going to turn from where he's standing at originally over there on the far right side of the infield is next to none. Next to none. You're not getting two outs from over there. If you want to convince me you're going to get one out, of course you're going to get one out, but you're not getting two. I'd much take, I'd much rather take the small chance of playing him in traditional double play depth to where if the ball is hit up the middle, you're going to get two outs automatically. Two outs better than one out. That's my point. We'll move on because it just you, your point stands. I'm not trying to say that. I was just going to tell you that's kind of the difference in my, in playing guys in certain positions when there's a guy on base versus not. I just feel like I tweeted earlier about how this Reds team has asked a lot of these young guys to do things that they uh, that they otherwise wouldn't ordinarily ask people to do. And I was specifically talking about Andrew Abbott. I really wasn't getting into the Steers and the Friedels and, and, and you know, the Ellies of the world because, you know, players that are playing every day, if they get some rest, I do think they can probably overextend themselves a little bit when they're young. The one thing that I'm not sure that that I'm going to buy into is the Andrew Abbott thought that if that if there was any chance in the world that the Reds should or could shut him down, they would. I don't know how you feel about it, but it just seems like he's labored the last few outings at least. And uh, I don't have a lot of confidence in him, not because I don't like him. It's not because I don't think he has a good future. It's not because I don't believe in Andrew Abbott. I just think that he's met he's met he's met the 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 time of the year where you know the arms just it's just ready to be done. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a guy who's never thrown as much as he has uh, this year. And, you know, you look at his first 10 starts, and uh, he was off to an incredible start. And, but one of the things that changed, and, and it didn't come to fruition tonight, it didn't really matter, but his first 10 starts, 2.77 walk per, walks per nine, 
His last 10 starts have ballooned almost double up to 4.96 walks per nine. So he's losing control, which is obviously a indicator of, of fatigue in general. Um, I think again, like a lot of the young pitchers on this staff, they've just got to develop secondary and tertiary pitches when you're throwing 50% plus fastballs and your fastball is only 92 miles an hour, you're going to find a lot of bats. And that's what happened tonight. I mean, what the hell did you just say? Secondary and what? <laughs> and Sec- tertiary. What, what was that? Say it again. <laughs> tertiary. Tertiary. You, 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 don't, you, don't, you don't break out tertiary on Chatterbox. <laughs> that, 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 that intellect level is way too high. I, I got made fun of earlier for saying seen. I'll say seen as much as I want. All right, AJ. Tertiary. Oh, man. <laughs> I just made you, I want to make sure I heard that right. All right. So tertiary pitches. Keep going. He needs he needs more than one pitch, Trace. He's got to have a second and a third pitch he can go to. He's throwing 50% fastballs. His whiff rate tonight, like I said, he had two swings and misses on the entire night. I mean, that's just not going to get it done. And uh, he's, you know, the movement's not there. The spin rate's not there. Um, it's just, you know, for a guy who has clearly reached his kind of uh, – his cap in terms of what he's able to yeah. do in a season right now. And it's no fault of his own. Nobody expected to have to ask this much out of him this year, but uh, yeah, if, if the Reds pitching staff was healthy, would they have asked him to make 21 starts this year? Probably not. Um, but that's where we're at and you can't make excuses for it. Um, all you can do is continue to go out there and put forth your best effort and see what we can do. Um, but for me tonight, it was just a, a, complete lack of of swings and misses and the the guardians clearly had andrew dabbitt's number whether it was because they knew what was coming or just because it was extremely hittable i mean velocity was down a little bit on all his pitches um and just in general it just flat everything's flat let's talk about let's talk about the offense tonight and then obviously i have ellie on here as well i think that ellie's a pretty big critical piece tonight i, I thought he looked much better at the plate thankfully uh, he kind of carried over what he had done last night. I get it. He only had, I think he had one hit tonight, yes, but he also got on base multiple times, and he took bags. I think that's the biggest piece with Ellie that really maybe goes underappreciated by the the average fan or by somebody that probably just looks at the scoreboard and looks at the statistics and regards the batting average on base, all those types of things. Just the fact that he puts pressure on the defense is uh, it makes him elite. That 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 makes him elite. He forces the opponent to make mistakes uh, that don't show up in the box score. Um, so you know, uh, it is it's nice to see him get going again tonight. He gave the he gave the Reds a chance. Uh, I, I think now's the time maybe to bring up that he he was aggressive. He got thrown out at home. I didn't have a problem with it. I didn't have a problem with it. There was two outs in the inning. I know he got thrown out, but ultimately, you know what? If he bobbles that or he throws that ball offline just a little bit, Craig, I think he scores, and we're talking about something completely different. Yeah, I didn't necessarily have a problem with it either. Um, Like you said, I think at the end of the day, you're putting the defense in a position to make a mistake, which they do regularly when Ellie is on base. Um, That's really where he becomes elite is by challenging defenses and why for – a month plus or two months, it felt like he was struggling because it felt to me like he was trying to hit the ball out of the yard every single time he was up to, to the plate. You look at it tonight, he made contact on three of his four plate appearances and walked in the fourth. So 
I mean, the nice part for me is that the swings and misses and the chase rate are down. Um, I'd much rather see a nice, easy swing from Ellie De La Cruz get on base and force the defense's hands. And what happens when you do that is not only do you force the defense's hands, but with the strength that Ellie has and the bat speed that Ellie has, you're going to run into pitches like you did last night, and you're going to hit bombs even without having to swing for the fences every single time. And so, yeah, I mean, I've I've loved what I've seen from Ellie for the last four or so games, um, including tonight, even though he was one for three. I felt like it was a good game out of him. Um, and I, I, you know, two stolen bases. And I again, I don't mind the aggressiveness because at the end of the day, what I don't want to have happen is I don't want to uh, discourage aggressiveness by Ellie De La Cruz in any situation. If he thinks that he can score or he thinks he can gain a base, then by golly, I want him to try and do it because most times he's going to end up being successful on that. Uh, the reason it's not over is because the Cubs bullpen. Speaking of bullpens, uh, we have a bullpen that continues to find ways to give us a chance to win. I, I just can't believe how many times this team throws six, seven innings and only gives up one run. And you know what really, really burns? The thing that hurts the most maybe at the end of the year when you look back, and yes, you have the Sunday in Oakland, and I've made jokes about that, and I'll continue to make jokes about it because it was terrible. But um, But I just... I just... The Saturday game where that bullpen gave up so many runs, it's just tough to swallow a little bit because they've been so good. They've been so good that, uh, you know, if it ends up being that one game, then then that's, I guess that's part of baseball. There's a reason they, they you know, they play 162 of them. And out of 162, Craig, more than likely one of them is going to be a really, really bad loss. And uh, it just so happens it came towards the very end of the year that everybody's going to remember and to be fair, the Cubs just had one the other night by dropping a fly ball. So, you know, I, I don't know. We're in a spot now where um, if this is it, Craig, what a hell of a year, man. I don't know. I just don't know what else to say there is about this bullpen outside the fact that if you were to say, hey, going into next year, here's a fun little topic for us. Going into next year, this team's going to have the opportunity to probably go out and get a couple arms, I would think, for the bullpen. But the question bears... Who do you trust going into next year out of this bullpen? They've all been pretty good, and 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 by pretty good, some of them have been unbelievably good. Some have had their 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 times of greatness, and some have had their times where you realize that you know you, you there's a reason you probably never heard of uh, never heard of them until this year. But which guys stick out to you? You say, hey, I I, I really want this person back pitching for this team. Well. Um... I think you start with the obvious. I mean, Alexis Diaz carried this team for the first half of the year for sure, uh, was a shutdown closer, had a couple hiccups in the second half, but I think, quite frankly, you have to trust him. Loved what I've seen out of Fernando Cruz this year. Um, the one that was surprising to me that I wasn't necessarily expecting, but that, in my opinion, at least has earned a spot on this squad moving forward is Ian Jabot. Um, he's felt like a guy who can come in in basically any situation and get outs. Um, he did it again tonight. He came in and uh, pitched a scoreless eighth. Um, you know, so the one thing about this bullpen is that it's been guys that you didn't really expect it from. Obviously, Lucas Sims uh, came into the year as someone that you expected a lot out of. Ended up being a guy that maybe you didn't use as much as a lot of people expected, but. Um, the good part of it is that you've got a lot of people who have stepped up. 
Um, I mean, let's run down the list real quick. Obviously, Alexis Diaz, I think we agree that you have to trust him moving into next year, and he probably stays in your closer role, right? Yes, but I, I, I'm with Kirby on this, and I know that sounds wild. I really don't want to go into this tonight, and I don't think that we should always do this. I, I would just say this about Diaz. Do I expect him to be back? Yes. Do I think that, that he earns it every, every bit to be back? Yes. If someone's going to do something ridiculous, Craig, because they, they want that shutdown guy, then I will just tell you from a bullpen perspective, very rarely are you going to find me thinking that these guys are irreplaceable, if that makes sense. I don't want to make it sound like I want to trade everybody all the time because I don't, you know, and I'm not suggesting for a second that's the best move for the Reds. But if you were to ask me peak value of a reliever, Diaz is about as high as as one could get, rightfully so. But I would also say when I watch him, um, there are times where it feels like to me Diaz shows that there are how do I say this without making sound like an idiot because he's a he's an all-star he's an he's an unbelievable reliever I guess he, he just there's not like a huge wow factor there for me all the time where I'm just like like a Roldis Chapman maybe at the beginning of his career where you're just like okay how the hell is anyone going to hit this it's impossible and maybe some of it's recency bias because of just the way he struggled a little bit towards the end of the year. I'm not saying I would 100% trade Diaz. I'm just saying if they were to get if they were to make a trade with Diaz in it, I wouldn't say that that's the worst move in the history of the Reds is what I'm getting at. Hopefully that makes sense. People don't think that I'm trying to suggest we trade our all-star closer or anything like that. I just think that you got you got guys that have that have shown their throw the ball really really well. I mean, Fernando Cruz, Ian Jabot, uh, I get they don't have names, but at the same time, when you watch their stuff and you look at who they've are, who they've been, and ha- who they are, it's hard not to like those guys, Craig. Yeah, and I'll throw in a name as well that wasn't on the squad to begin the year, and Sam Mall, and what he's been able to do as a left-handed specialist out of the bullpen. I mean, the guy that you had at the trade deadline has come in and kind of been a cornerstone of your uh, bullpen. He hasn't pitched as much. Um, maybe as you would like to see out of a left-handed specialist, but that role has changed a lot now that you've got to face three batters and uh, some, you know, the changes to the rules. But um, I've liked what I've seen out of him for sure. Um, I said it a couple of days ago. I think there's an opportunity for for Fernando Cruz to really uh, compete for that closer role. Here's what I have to say about that. And, you know, I think ultimately more than, maybe more than any other role on the team a closer is so over analyzed and maybe not over analyzed but just overvalued more than any other position they are well no i well yeah they're probably overvalued for sure they're overvalued but i think people judge them a lot harder than almost any other position and i say that because they're mostly put into opportunities where it's high leverage and they have to, you know, come up big. And so when they don't, it stands out in your mind because it feels like a huge blown opportunity where if a batter swikes, uh, strikes out swinging with bases loaded and two outs, that doesn't stand out in your mind as much as a closer blowing a save. Um, it just feels like that position is under the microscope at all times. And so... You know, you look at Alexis Diaz, and I think he had, he ended up with, like, maybe two blown saves on the entire year. But it felt like cracks showed multiple times throughout the year. And that's probably why we 
you know, and yeah, I think he's two been, of his he, last. And, and to be fair, I mean, listen, we're, we're saying he's great. I mean, I think we, we all know that Alexis Diaz was fantastic this year, and we're not trying to downplay it. And that's where this whole thing gets turned sideways. And your your critics and your haters will 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 come out and say that you're you know you're look at you you're just you're just getting rid of all the good players. You don't like any of them, whatever. Um. I would just say, Craig, I think that the, the the value piece is where we stand on this, and we both agree. It's just a matter of trying to figure out what it is that you have and the depth that this team has. It certainly feels like heading into next year, this team probably needs to add two or three arms, in my opinion. Um, Jed, Jed in the chat asked, what does this Reds bullpen, or what does other bullpens have that this team doesn't have? I would argue that there's some, some other good bullpens you'd like to think they'd have a couple good left-handed options, not just... If we're being honest, Sam Mole's been unbelievable. Um, but if it wasn't for him coming over at the deadline, do you really trust Alex Young? And then on top of that, you know, you you watch some of these games and Velo. I mean, Velo's probably the number one thing that I don't think that this Reds bullpen really has. There's not really that many guys that come in that you're like, you know, you expect you expect strikeouts. Now they've done a really good job of getting strikeouts to a certain extent. But there, there are leverage situations. Like, for instance, I guess maybe, and this is being very, very critical. All right, this is being, this is, this is, this is really, really getting to the weeds on this a little bit, Craig. Every time you bring in Diaz and you're looking for a strikeout, right, or you need a strikeout, it doesn't feel like you're gonna get a, you're gonna get a strikeout more times than not. In a way, I, I, I if that makes sense, just he's just not gonna velo overpower guys if. If that slider is not working, then ultimately, you know, it's just not working. So, and and, and I, I guess it's it's just concerning to. Uh, I don't want to say it's concerning. If if Diaz comes back, I'd be thrilled to death. But I just wanted to make it known that you know, from a bullpen perspective, you add two or three arms, and uh, we keep it moving. I I I don't know how you feel, and and. Uh, but this team has a lot of flexibility going into this offseason, and, and obviously we still have three games left, so I don't make it sound like the season's over. The bullpen and probably the outfield feel like the two positions that me need the most attention. Um, yeah. I'll say this real quick about Alexis Diaz before we move on to potentially talking about the outfield, but I have this feeling, and this is what, what makes me nervous about Alexis Diaz, and it was mentioned in the chat. The thing that makes me nervous about someone like Alexis Diaz is that they rely on chase rate. And I think there eventually will become a time in MLB. We've seen it in so many different areas where statistics and analytics catch up to people. There will come a time where you're going to have to actually put a ball in the strike zone. And right now, he doesn't have that pitch that he can rely on in the zone to get outs, right? He relies on a pitch that ends up out of the zone nearly every time in order to get those outs. And so you look at guys like, you know, even Mariano Rivera, right? He had that classic cutter that he could throw on the inside part of the plate, saw guys off, but it was in the zone a majority of the time. It's not like he was getting guys to chase. He was just sawing them off at the, at the, at the bat. So one of the things that makes me nervous is just what is the future of the MLB look like against pitchers like Alexis Diaz, who is not getting guys out by putting the ball in the zone. Yeah, it's fair. I mean, that's more than fair. I think that's probably where my my issues have always lied. It's like those guys sling it, swing at those sliders that almost hit them in the back foot. But at some point, 
when you stop swinging at that, if that's a thing, then then obviously that's when maybe Diaz struggles. All right, uh, there's a couple pretty important or not important questions. Maybe we get to, maybe we don't. Mousecop brings up a good question. Usually he's in there having fun with the chat, but he he, he put his thinking cap on for once, I guess. Mousecop did. Um, <laughs> he asked about the catcher's position. I know we talked about the outfielder. We're going to get into the outfield, and we might as well just touch on the catcher's position here really quickly. That's a tough one. Um, that one's a really tough one for me because I think that there is sparks, there are signs, there are small glimmers of hope with Tyler Stevenson. I think Tyler Stevenson, if he can catch just a little bit, just catch a little bit, then then, then he's then he's then he's an above average catcher in this league. I mean, he he can hit he, for for a catcher. Stevenson can hit. He's just so bad defensively that it makes it hard to to really appreciate that. If that makes sense. Um, Maley been excellent, but again, I don't know. Are you putting are you putting Maley behind the plate and trusting Maley to be a guy that's going to be a part of that core group of people that are going to win you a World Series? I don't know. I'm not trying to downplay Maley at any by any stretch, but um, I don't know how you feel about it. But I, I'm indifferent on it. I'm not sure if they keep Stevenson. I'm not going to be super upset about it. If they if they go out and make a trade and get somebody, then then it wouldn't surprise me either. Stevenson had yet another ball tonight that he failed to catch appropriately. That should have been strike three that ended up being called a ball because he doesn't know how to frame a pitch. So that is true. My frustration sucked there, by the way, he was really, really inconsistent tonight. Um, Terrible call by that umpire. Yeah. It wasn't the only one. So I know, but um, Tyler Stevenson wasn't even in his way. I don't understand how he missed that. He missed a lot on the outside part of the plate. That one was on the inside. He didn't miss a ton on the inside. That was, uh, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Long story short, and and then the other piece of it, and and I've talked about this on the show previously, is that I feel like Tyler Tyler Stevenson is is lazy behind the plate. Quite frankly, um, I don't feel like he drops down and blocks balls the way you would expect a professional catcher to block a ball. The number of balls that go five hole on Tyler Stevenson is asinine to me. Um, I, I, I'm not going to begin to pretend that I understand what it's like to try and catch a hundred mile an hour fastball or an 87 mile an hour curveball that bounces in front of you. But what I do know is that when I look at the good defensive catchers that they are down, they're blocking the ball, the gloves between the legs and they're staying, they're staying there. What I see from Tyler Stevenson pretty regularly is that one, he doesn't get down on his knees and two, the glove comes up as he tries to catch the ball. And what happens is the ball just skips underneath him rather than, you know, just hitting the glove or, or bouncing up into the chest protector. Here's the thing, Craig. I, I, I'm 100% with you on Stevenson. I, I Listen, the guy can't catch. I don't know what to say about it. I mean, the guy can't catch. He's If he could catch, we'd all love him because the dude would be one of the best catchers in Major League Baseball. And that's not that's not hyperbole. That's just objectively a fact. And the, the sad part is he's just not a catcher. And... Can he get better? I, I I don't know, man. I think it just comes down to athleticism, Craig. I think you you uh, and, and, and I, I'm not saying you're wrong. You might be right, but I think you're getting fooled by his inathleticism, his un his inability to be able to move, his inability to be able to read pitches, his inability to be able to ca- be able to catch the ball fluidly. Um, that you you assume it as laziness. I just assume it as a guy can't catch. He's he's trying hard. He's just not good enough. And that's the scarier part of the two. I, I wish he was lazy. Because I think if he was lazy, Craig, you can get better from laziness. Like, if you start trying, I think he tries. I just don't think he's good enough to be as... When you watch him versus other catchers that are good defensively, it's night and day. Like, it's not even it's not even the same game, right? It's almost like going and watching a, a, a college golfer 
and then going to watch going to watch a major championship with all the best golfers in the world. You, the college golfer looks good at times, yes, but then you go and you watch the professional golfer and you realize there's a vast difference between the two. That's just kind of where we're at. At least that's where I'm at with Tyler Stevenson. Do I think that he can still possibly be a, a, an everyday major league catcher? I want to say yes. My heart says no, or my, my brain says no. Um, that's where I'm at. I, I, I don't. And I don't mean to crush the kid. I think he cares. I just don't think he's good enough. Yeah, the the one other piece that I've brought up previously that I think is important to think about is that when you have a young pitching staff like the Reds have and will have again next year, that catcher can play a huge role in the success of that pitching staff. They, I mean, quite frankly, they can serve as an extension of Derek Johnson. And so whether I – don't, I don't know, right? We're not part of those conversations, whether – Tyler Stevenson is amazing in terms of calling a game and whether Luke Maley is amazing in terms of being able to identify things that pitchers are doing to try and uh, get them back on track. I don't know. I, I'm sure there's stats out there that would probably tell me how good they are defensively outside of actually blocking balls and throwing guys out, but right. they have a role beyond that. And I think it's really important to, to make sure that we're putting our pitching staff in the best position to succeed and that starts with the catcher. I mean, and that's in terms of you know places that you can control moving into next year. Derek Johnson's not going anywhere. Um, David Bell's not going anywhere. The pitching staff isn't going to change substantially. You might you know add in one arm here or there or whatever it might be. Um, but the catcher is the position that you have control over for next year that could potentially have an impact on that. So that's the only thing I would I would throw out there as a consideration. Again, I don't know enough of the conversations that happen and behind the scenes, but the one thing I would ask is that whoever it is, we feel confident about their ability to help this pitching staff, and that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I, that's very fair too. I I, I don't know if, I don't know what the Reds are going to do a catch. I really don't. I mean, I wish if I did, I'd I'd love to tell everybody, but it'll be interesting. There's a there's a couple moves that I'm just not sure if the Reds believe that they have what they want. You know, uh, I, in fact, I would argue that the last few days have kind of said everything you need to know about what the Reds feel like Tyler Stevenson is as a catcher. You know, as soon as Maley was healthy, he's played every day. So I don't know if that speaks more to the volumes that the, the pitching staff wants to throw to Maley or if they just the Reds trust Maley more. I have no idea. Uh, well, we just finished the conversation about catcher. I know there was questions in the chat about what the infield looks like. Quite frankly, I feel like the infield set. I don't think there's a whole lot of conversation there. You're probably going to be having a conversation about a uh, platoon piece or a, a piece that can kind of fill in here or there. But I, I think for the most part, your infield is set for next year, regardless of what people think. Ellie is your shortstop. Uh, Matt McLean is probably your second baseman with India filling in there. Uh, CES is your first baseman, assuming Joey Votto doesn't come back. And I think Marte is your everyday third baseman. So one of those guys will probably DH while the other guys play the infield. And the outfield, I think, is really the question. I think Spencer Steer and TJ Friedel have certainly shown enough to be everyday outfielders, but beyond that, beyond that, you've got a, a question of what what the outfield looks like. But I don't think there's any question on the infield. Uh, the real question is, you know, beyond Jonathan India, who's also on your bench, and uh, Jose Barrero has certainly made uh, a fight for that. But I don't know that the Reds are ready to commit to him being everyday platoon player correct no i don't think they are either can we talk about something really quickly here i would love to um 
Mm. People in the chat are talking about Ellie moving. I we can't move Ellie this fast, guys. Okay, I'll tell you why. Can I tell you? Can can you at least hear me out on this just for half a second? Um, I'm not suggesting for one second that Ellie De La Cruz might not end up playing center field. All right, he he, he may. He may, but it's one of those things where you got to at least give it a chance at shortstop because if he's if he is an elite shortstop, what it does allow the Reds to, to be and do is just a, a, a much different team. They're a much different team. I would argue, too, right now, where, where do you really want to play these other guys that... If you put Matt McClain, I'll just hypothetically speaking here. If you put Matt McClain at shortstop, then I would say you're going to have a defensive hole at second base. Yeah, that's just is what it is. And then if you if if you if you move him to third base and you put Noelve at shortstop, then or excuse me, you move him to center field, you put Noelve at shortstop, Matt McClain plays second base, then I would argue you're going to have a, a defensive deficiency at third base, uh, which I don't know. I get where everybody's coming from, but again, I I still. I'd like to be able to see him play shortstop for another year before we before we keep it moving. Jeff Frazier asks, where's Arroyo going to play? Listen, Arroyo just got out of A-ball. Like, he's in double-A. He's 19 years old, all right? That, that, that guy is the guy that might replace Ellie when Ellie gets towards the end of his contract type stuff. You know, like, that's, that's the type of thing where I think we've gotten spoiled a little bit in this franchise. We've gotten spoiled a little bit in this franchise because... We just assume all of these guys are going to come back and be elite level Major League Baseball players every single time, and I just don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. So, what's your what's your thought on that, Craig? I I, I have to see Ellie play shortstop one more year before I'm ready for 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 me to deem that he needs to move. That's all. I mean, I'm not suggesting for a second that that Ellie couldn't be a center fielder. I think he could. He's an athlete. But having an elite level defensive shortstop with Matt McClain, who's going to be an elite level second baseman. And I think Matt McLean can be an elite level shortstop too. I'm not downplaying that, Craig. But just having the idea of TJ Friedel in center, Ellie McLean, and perhaps maybe a good defensive catcher, that the Reds have not had that many good players up the middle in a very, very long time. For the people who are arguing that Ellie needs to move to the outfield, I think the question is simple. I, obviously, if you move him to the outfield, the answer is, is center field. One, it's going to take time for him to adjust to center field. Like you don't just move to the outfield and just from day one track down balls. Like it's your job. Like catching a fly ball is not as easy as people make it look. But to your point, just ask Suzuki. I think, yeah, just ask Suzuki. Um, to your point though, like moving him to center field just leaves you with another hole in the infield anyway. Like I understand that we have Matt McLean, who is you know hopefully healthy next year. But we've spent all this time talking about the need to replace Jonathan India defensively. So if you take Ellie out, we've heard that Marte is not a shortstop based on his his experiences at the minor league level. So it's not like you're going to move him there because then you still have a deficiency at shortstop. And I don't know who fills in at third. You talk steer because you move Friedel over to left field. I just I I, I think that you're not solving problems by doing that you're just trying to escape things and it just opens up more questions and like you said i think he's young he's got lots of opportunities still to to learn the position last thing i'll say real quick on ellie is that i think we have a lot of recency bias on him right now um he struggled 
defensively on some routine balls over the last couple of weeks. Um, but he was struggling everywhere. The kid was in his head more than any guy I've seen in a long time. Like sure. he was in his head offensively. He was in his own head defensively, just all over the place. And he's 21. He's going to have those moments, right? So in my opinion, at least you, you give him ample opportunity. Uh, he's shown the ability to make really good plays, the difficult plays. Um, I'm not ready to move on from him at, at no. shortstop. And the Reds aren't going to either, so I don't know. I mean, no. I, it, it, it's fun to talk about it and all that, but I mean, let's be honest, uh, they're not going to do that. All right, the NL wild card race on Thursday. First game up, it'll be at 210. Diamondbacks at the White Sox. Bryce Jarvis on the mound for the Diamondbacks. Going up against Tukey Toussaint for the White Sox. Then at 7, 10 p.m., it'll be the Marlins at the Mets. Jesus Lizardo, the lefty on the mound for the Marlins. Going up against another lefty, David Peterson, for the Mets. Then at 7.20, Cubs at the Braves. Marcus Stroman on the mound for the Cubs. Going up against A.J. Smith-Shawyer for the Braves. So here's where things stand for the Reds. The only way that the Diamondbacks matter in any sort of playoff discussion for the Reds would be the Diamondbacks would have to go 0-4 and the Reds would have to go 3-0. and So the chances of both of those happening, probably highly unlikely, but we'll lay it out there just in case somehow that was to come into play. So pretty much we're just talking about the Reds' paths versus the Marlins and Cubs for the one and only final wildcard spot. All right, so if the Reds were to sweep the Cardinals this weekend, they would need the Marlins to go 1-3 or worse, and the Cubs to go 2-2 two and two or worse. If the Reds were to take just two of three from the Cardinals, they would need the Marlins to go 0 and 4 and the Cubs to go 1 and 3 or worse. So the Red season pretty much comes down to this. If the Marlins were to win twice and the Diamondbacks win once, Red season's over. There's no way they can get in the playoffs. Of course, some other things along with that can also come into play, but that's pretty much what it comes down to at this point. All right, Reds are off on Thursday, of course, but they will be playing at the St. Louis Cardinals this weekend. St. Louis Cardinals in an unfamiliar place. They will finish last place in the NL Central. Reds, of course, still hoping for a miracle to get into the NL wildcard race, but still have a lot to play for. They need one more win to finish the season with a winning record. And literally about half the St. Louis Cardinals roster is on the IL right now. Nolan Arenado, Dylan Carlson, Wilson Contreras, Nolan Gorman, Alec Burleson, Gagos, Tyler O'Neill, and Steven Matz all on the IL. Pitching matchups lay out like this. Friday's game, 8.15 p.m. It'll be Brandon Williamson up against Jake Woodford for the Cardinals. Then it's Saturday, it'll be Connor Phillips up against the lefty Drew Rahm. Saturday's game at 7.15 p.m. And then Sunday, the season finale, at 3.15 p.m., Hunter Green against Miles Michaelis. All teams in Major League Baseball play around 3 p.m. on Sunday. I'll be back on Friday morning with a quick podcast. I'll recap the wild card race and then also preview in a little more detail this Cardinals series for the Reds. In the meantime, be sure to check out Off the Bench, 10 a.m. to noon on Chatterbox Sports on YouTube. Trace and the guys will be talking about this tough Reds loss and all the college football and pro football this weekend more football shows on youtube for chatterbox sports first off 
Chatterbox Clicker, Bengals film breakdown with former Bengals coach Kyle Kasky. Be sure to check that out. Really cool breakdowns of all the uh, the Bengals action. And then the other new show, Mac and JT. Our guys Casey McAllister and Jacob Tissett talk all things NFL. So Chatterbox Sports on YouTube, the place to be. All kinds of great content always getting uh, pumped out for you. Well, I hope that you guys have a great Thursday. Go Mets. Go Braves. Go White Sox. And as always, go Reds.